I'm Cassidy Hall. I am Kevin Johnson. I'm Carl McCollman, and we are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by listeners like you. Please visit www.patreon.com slash encountering silence. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash encountering silence. To learn how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all-too-noisy world. Joining us today on Encountering Silence is writer and educator Kenneth S. Leong. Ken is the author of The Zen Teachings of Jesus and 100 Zen Stories for the New Millennium. For over 20 years, he worked on Wall Street. And then, after receiving a master's degree in teaching, he has taught in a variety of disciplines, including mathematics, economics, finance, as well as philosophy and Zen. Indeed, he has been a Zen teacher since the mid-1990s. These days, Ken is an active presence on social media. I first connected with him through the Zen Christians and the Alan Watts and Buddhism groups on Facebook. Ken, we are so happy to welcome you to Encountering Silence. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm a fan of the book, The Zen Teachings of Jesus. Uh, it uh, has, has really been uh, a wonderful book for me to read. And I'm wondering if maybe before we start talking about silence, if you could just share a little bit about what inspired you to write about a book that brought Zen and Jesus together. Well, I, I as you know, I started out being Christian. So my whole family uh, is Christian. But uh, because I grew up in Hong Kong, I'm also, you know, at a pretty early age, I was exposed to Buddhism and Taoism. And uh, basically, in terms of my own, my personality, I'm more, much more of a Zen and Tao person. So, okay. and, and then, but, but then, you know, so I left the church like around maybe age 17. Mm -hmm. uh, in search of the Tao. And then, you know, I didn't really, at that time, I already had some exposure to, to uh, Buddhism. I read the Diamond Sutra and the Heart Sutra, and I didn't know anything. You know, it was very difficult to, to understand at that point. And, sure. but, but then I, I picked up Buddhism again when I was like around 40. And I think really Buddhism, it suits the, the older and more mature people better. Um, <laughs> and uh, my, I mean, I, I taught a course in a low in a New York City high school, right? And mm -hmm. uh, my head of head of school told me, Ken, you're talking to young people about Buddhism, but guess what? In Buddhism, you frown on desire, don't you? You know, do you, do you expect uh, young people to, to get that? <laughs> <laughs> so, well, but young people can be interested in Buddhism, can't they? 
Yeah, they, they actually, they love my course. I mean, not oh. only did my students love my course, but all the parents love it. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, remember why I was teaching teenagers and the, and the parents think that uh, it is a great way to, to ground, you know, the, the, the young people, you know, to, to more stability and um, have some feeling, experience of silence. They, they, they absolutely love it. Yeah. Wonderful. Ken, do you ever, I, I guess I wonder if that, that age maturity is maybe a little to do with also suffering maturity. So, you know, it could be a young yeah. person could find themselves very interested because of the suffering they've been through. Um, right. Right. Suffering recognition that. is very crucial for enlightenment. Right. So, you know, with, I mean, Basically, my theory is that without suffering, you, you're even if you have an enlightenment experience, it will be a rather lightweight. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't any serious enlightenment. Mm -hmm. But yeah. I mean, the, the more suffering you have had, then your enlightenment, you know, will be much deeper. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That it's... reminds me. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Um... Richard Rohr, the, the Franciscan oh, yes, writer, yes. He's, he's been on our show, but he talks about suffering as one of the three gateways to contemplation. And so that seems to tie right in with what you're saying. Yeah. Right. It's also interesting to me, it's not surprising that uh, you say that Buddhism for older people. I, I was a, an attorney and then I left law and went back into the academic realm. And, and before I went into doctoral studies and everything, I taught at a high school and while right. I was there, I taught world religions, and one of the uh, teachers at the high school with me taught world history, and he was Buddhist. And he right. said that exact comment to me. Uh, I was talking about, I'm teaching Buddhism, my kids love it, but at the same time, I feel like, I said, I feel like they don't get it. They like it, they're interested, but they their questions suggest they don't understand it. And he said to me, and he says, no, because they need to be about 40 or 50 years old, and then they'll get it. And, I yeah. read, and he was the first one who ever said that to me. And it's funny that you said it too. And especially in Mahayana Buddhism, basically Mahayana Buddhists, if they're Chinese, they usually start by reading the Heart Sutra and the Diamond Sutra. Mm -hmm. that, that is basically the worst place to start you know, <laughs> to understand Buddhism. Right. I mean, you, you probably right. much, would do much better by, by reading about the Four Noble Truths mm -hmm. and the Eightfold Path. And, and that was basically what I did when my, I first started teaching, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. there aren't too many secular, you know, and lay, layman pers, uh, Dharma teachers, but I was one of them. Mm -hmm. And I started out teaching the Four Noble Truths, you know, in a, in a Chinatown temple. Right. And, um, and I was commissioned, you know, by the abbot to do it because we all know that among the Chinese people, <laughs> Buddhism, you know, was not well understood. You know, they, they really needed some basics. So that that's that's how I got started. Right. Right. Yeah. So in your tradition and in your work between monasticism, art, academia, and so on, how has silence been a part of that? And how has it impacted your ability to to grow and evolve? Right. Yeah. Well, without silence, I mean, as you know, I'm a writer and I, I consider myself mostly a writer before even I'm a teacher. If you're a writer and you don't have silence, you cannot write. Right? <laughs> so, I mean, basically, 
a writer needs both silence and solitude. So without these two elements, you it would be you'll be hard pressed to, to produce any quality writing. And you know, these days I, I live alone, you know, so every night I I write. Mm-hmm. And you know, that environment of living alone actually gives me tremendous opportunity. And I'm actually having a lot of fun because I mean it's it is you're spending time with yourself. And I and and a lot of people think that, you know, probably living alone is probably very boring, very lonely, but 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 that's a, a way for you to dip into your inner resources. And you know, I'm surprised how much I when I dig in into my own soul, you know, I find so much material. So so I have enough to write an article every night, basically. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, so tell me a little bit about how you how you make silence part of your your writing. Do you do you do a meditation sitting time, or do you? I'm just curious to hear what your routine is like. Um, no, for for me, silence means that you're not distracted. You know, the Buddha talk about, you know, the Eightfold Path, it means that there's one element which is called the right concentration. If you're not yes. concentrated, you cannot write. Right. right? Mm. So for me, I mean, I, I really totally kind of ignore what they say about Zazen. You know, I, I'm not a big believer in sitting meditation. And if you're familiar with you know, the Platform Sutra, which is right. the only Chinese language sutra. Right, right, right. right. Chinese. The plat- uh, Hui Nan basically says that, how can you expect to get enlightened by sitting like right. a rock? <laughs> right, 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 right. right. Can, I mean, if you put, if you rub two bricks together, can, can, can you polish them into a mirror? That's right. You right. can't. Right. So Hui Nan says that enlightenment is a matter of understanding. Mm-hmm. It's not a matter of sitting. I mean that that's direct quote from the from the sutra. So that's spectacular. I um just to let you know my background is I do um my, my doctoral work is in interreligious dialogue specifically in Christianity yeah. and Buddhism. Uh and so I and I did a lot of Mahayana and Vajrayana work. And so I I appreciate deeply here what you're saying that silence for you seems to be and this is part of what the podcast is about that silence doesn't necessarily mean a structured meditation period. It doesn't necessarily mean no noise. It, right. We talk about it on this podcast in various ways, and one of the ways we've been talking about it as a shift in consciousness, a shift in attention. Yes. Um, and that seems to be what you're saying here. That, yeah, that, so, yeah, so silence to me means right concentration. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. yeah, that's spectacular. And so a sitting practice could support that, but it's not necessarily the only way right to, right so to one, do that yeah yeah one it's not fit all that that's that's yeah. all we we recently had a guest on the podcast named barbara holmes who writes about uh african-american christianity and contemplation within within that context and she says exactly the same thing that that oftentimes in that world contemplation is entered through lament Mm-hmm. Through through dance, through through celebration, you know. Right. So there's a, there's a variety of ways. So the the silence is an interior silence, right? Which we may find whether we have external silence or even in the midst of external noise. So. Right. I'm kind of curious since we're talking about this. I, 
because I am in the realm of of Buddhism and Christianity discussing, and I, I, I study that and everything, I'm kind of curious as to, let's get back to the book here, the Zen teachings of Jesus. How mm. do you see, what is this relationship between Zen and Christianity? And, and how did, you said you started to move in this direction. Why did you think you wanted to put this together in, a, in book form? Yes. Uh, well, Basically, I, I have always been approached by evangelical Christians, you know, uh-huh. some of them more like funda- fund- fundamentalists. So, I mean, that's, that's my way to tell them what I see as a relationship. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Uh, oh, spectacular. To the, the constant, you know, approaching. Yeah. So when someone comes to your door, you can just say, here, read this book. <laughs> <laughs> But more, more on a serious note. I mean, it. I, I think you know. Uh, it was really after I have some kind of enlightenment experience that I see the, the the two you know religions converging, and that's why I get a lot, a ton of inspiration. At, at you know, that was back in the nineties. It was a major event for me. Yeah. So, so Ken, I'm curious. You know, Buddhism obviously talks a lot about emptiness, and, and some Christians do also, including the mystics. And for instance, uh, you know, Merton talks about um, this newness and emptiness, um, creating a purity of vision that provides a glimpse of the cosmic dance, is what he says. Mm-hmm. And I wonder I wonder what, what your thoughts are on this, you know, negative theology, so to speak. Do you feel like it's connected through Buddhism and Christianity? And how how do you see them connected in terms of silence, emptiness, how can that help us to engage with one another? Yes. Well, as you know, if we are just going to talk about doctrine, I mean, then it's very difficult for Buddhists and Christians to communicate because we, we all have so much, such different doctrines. But even when I was growing up as a teenager, you know, I know that the, the Buddhist monks and nuns and the Catholic monks and nuns, they, they actually, they regularly got together to meditate. Yeah. So, so the silence is really the common language, you know, and you don't really have to say much. I mean, you just sit together in silence and you come I mean, there, there, there's, you can feel the communication. Right. It's beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah. And Cassidy is a huge Merton fan. And I'm just thinking of the quote that uh, Merton said right before his death, where he said, there is a deeper way of communication and it's about communion. That's right. Yeah. Communion is a good word. Yeah. And a lot of people don't realize this, but the night before Merton died, he had a a conversation with one of his editors back in New York, and he told the editor, the future of Christianity is Zen. (laughs) I'm I'm seeing more and more Christians, I mean, including Richard Rohr, you know, who was talking about, you know, non-duality and and a lot of, you know, know, Buddhist or Hindu concepts. So, I mean, I, I think we are entering a new age of consciousness where, you know, the boundaries between religions are opening up. And, and I, I see it as a very positive development. In, the, in your book, The Zen Teachings of Jesus, I love that you said, uh, we must realize that Zen and Christianity are not telling two different stories, but one story. Exactly. The only difference is in the language. And, and I think you're just pointing to that one story right now as you talk about that and talk about that the commonality, the meeting place of that singular story. Yes, yes. They, and if you just talk about the Buddhist language, Buddhist 
language tends to be more emphasizing emptiness and and it's it looks negative right whereas christian language talks about love like god is love so how do you put the two together mm. i think essentially still we are talking about compassion and and love kindness mm -hmm. but to me you know it seems to me that it's impossible to love another person unless you know your your mind is has given up the grasping and and the controlling and the clinging so that's why you know buddhism the when we practice detachment that's actually it opens the door for for genuine loving so that's that's how i see it and and that's that's uh, completely backed by the christian tradition if you if you look at like the desert masters of the christian tradition who remind me of zen masters actually when you read their sayings and stuff and you see so for instance evagrius who is in the desert makes the comment that like when you go into the desert and you they're meditating and they're being quiet and they're silent the goal was a detachment and the fruit of that detachment was what the word that they use is agape, which is the kind of love that God is, which is exactly what you're talking about, that you yeah. need to have this kind of moment of removal from the thinking and letting go and this emptiness. And then what's born is this compassion, this loving kindness, this other moment. Yes, the, the detachment sounds like a very negative word and sounds like very cold, but actually without detachment, you cannot really love. That's right. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can let's let's circle back to your personal relationship with silence, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you have any early memories of en encountering silence in your life. Oh yes, I have. Perhaps that was in nature fond, or many fond memories of silence. As you know, Hong Kong is a very crowded city, mm -hmm. and I grew up in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. But I mean, how do you Hong Kong people find silence? Well, I used to go to visit the monasteries with my parents when I was growing up as a boy. And, you know, it's very common for Hong Kong urbanites to visit the temples and the monasteries in the new territories, which, which is where the, these monasteries are. And we'll, we'll spend half a day. You hike up the mountains, uh, eat vegetarian food. You know, you, you, you feel the atmosphere. Right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really a, a way to, I would call it to cleanse your soul, you know, mm -hmm. as you, as you, you know, you're living in a very crowded environment that that's pretty much for mental hygiene. Yeah. Ken, were these monasteries, uh, Buddhist monasteries, Taoist monasteries, Christian or all of the above? Actually, mostly Buddhist, but also uh, some of them are Taoist. Yes. And were they were they Chan or Zen or some other lineage? I'm just curious. I think among the Chinese Buddhists, I, I would say the vast majority of, of them are Pure Land people. Ah, right? yeah. Pure Land. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. makes sense. And, and Zen is kind of like the minority, but, okay. but I, you know, I consider myself much more of a Zen guy. Mm -hmm. and, and Zen is much more Chinese than Indian. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's I, much more relationship with Taoism. I'm based in Atlanta, and we have a small convent of, they call themselves Chan right. nuns, but they're, they're from Taiwan. Right. But it's the same thing. It's, and they'll say, well, Chan and Zen are the same thing. Chan is just the Chinese word for Zen. Right. So, um, yeah. So, okay. How, how long, uh, I'm just kind of curious, uh, how long, I know it probably varies from time to time, but how long would you say it would take to do the pilgrimage up to the monastery? 
Like how much physical movement and activity does oh, one do to get there? At one time, uh, we had to hike almost a full day. Oh, you know? okay. Yeah. And then you, know, you have to sleep over. Yeah. And, but it gives you the opportunity to watch the sunrise, you know, which yeah. is a beautiful. Yeah. Spend time at a, at a sacred place, you know, kind of like hike up the sacred mountain. Yeah. And then you spend a night and and purify yourself, basically. We had an interview a couple weeks ago with somebody focusing on body and performance, and, and this is kind of like feeding into that a little bit for me. What I especially appreciate about that is, it, it again, to me, points to that one, that singular story, because, you know, there's different ways in which we all prepare for something, and to see that time as a, as a form of preparing for something that, you know, moving of the body, whereas some people prepare themselves for the Eucharist, you know, in Christianity and that, that pause, I wonder if you could speak to the importance of perhaps preparing for silence or preparing for engaging with the mystery in a profound way like that. Well, I think that the environment is important, you know, uh, it is, would be more difficult to have inner silence when you're in the marketplace, for example, okay? but it's it's easier if you if you're in solitude, and but it's it's mostly a matter of mindset. I mean, can you you know disengage yourself from all kinds of distractions? Yeah, that that's that's the main thing. Yeah, and did you find it, at times like that 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 stir? the the feelings of, you know, I can't do this, you know, I'm too tired, or I could just turn around, it'd be so much easier, and those kinds of things. Did you encounter a lot of that? or When I was practicing the sitting type of meditation, I, I had mm. some resistance, you know, and um, mm-hmm. I did not really enjoy doing that. But um, because my, my own silence is mostly basically sitting right here and right you know, uh, it, that's when mm-hmm. I can really have deeper reflections. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love my writing. I mean, it's uh, for me that 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 that's my way of enjoyment. Yeah. So I that that I really don't have any problems with. Cool. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath and be present in the silence. You know, we've said a couple times now, and we've and I and I I love the quote that you know we've mentioned here about Zen and Christianity. T- one story. What is that one story? How would you articulate what that one story is? Yeah, I think is it goes back to love, right? The story, the main theme is is still love. Mm. I mean, no matter you can call it love or you can call it compassion, but you know, mm-hmm. is feeling with other people, mm-hmm. right? having empathy, mm-hmm. uh, having kindness. I right. mean, we all religions go back to that. 
And I think the Dalai Lama has spoken about that. You know, he talks about going beyond religion because, I mean, all the religions always come back to, to love. Another quote from the book, Carl highlighted uh, for us, uh, he reminded me of it, and I, I want to read it because I think it's, it's a great quote. And this is from the book. The experience of the holy is closely related to the spirituality of silence. Yes. I'd lo- and so Carl asks, and I think this is a great question because I agree with this question. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts about the relationship between silence and holiness? And what can Zen teach Christianity and what can Christianity teach Zen? That's a big thing I do a lot. When I teach comparative work, I want to have both sides offering their best and learning from each other and teaching each other. And so I'd, I'd be curious to hear what your thoughts on that. Right, right. Okay, now, the word holiness, a lot of people don't understand the full meaning. Mm. I think in order to understand holiness, you need to relate it back to wholeness. And wholeness, what does wholeness, wholeness mean? It means you don't exclude, okay? They are not, and, and, and Jung, Carl Jung has talked about the shadow, right? Mm-hmm. But I mean, not only do you not reject the shadowy side of your soul, but also you don't reject the more, what society called the undesirable elements of society. So wholeness means that well, it goes back to what Buddha taught about dependent origination. And right. a lot of people don't understand. You right. know, when, when I was growing up, you talk about dependent origination, that there was no meaning to me at that point. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, as I grow older, you know, I understand that it, it means essentially interdependency and also interconnectedness. Okay? Right. The world... You can see many, many different objects in the world, but they're all interconnected. So just to use, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh has a great story. Uh, a little piece that he wrote is called Flower and Garbage. Yeah, okay? that's great. Yeah. And Flower and Garbage basically says that you look at the flower and the garbage, they look so different. And yet, you know, given time, the flower would turn into garbage, and then the, the garbage would could be recycled and provide nutrient to the flower. I mean, it's a full cycle. Right. And what is even more, you know, is what he said about, you know, the relationship, you know, in in the economy. You know, you, you look at some professions like prostitution, right? He talked about the, the, the young prostitutes in Manila and other big cities. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, if you're a politician, you will say, oh, let's get rid of prostitution. Right. Right? Or these are undesirable elements. However, so take that Han says, you know, why would people be doing this? You know, po- I mean, prostitution usually is caused by poverty. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you and the, and he compares the the young prostitutes with the more respectable young ladies of the world mm-hmm. is saying that you're all related because without uh, without richness, there will be no poverty, and without poverty, there cannot be wealth. Right. The two are interconnected, and you know, and also in a society, if why would there be existence of this profession called prostitution without cus- without customers? With customers. Their- <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. 
So, so I mean, I study economics, and I have, you know, written a lot about right livelihood. Right. I think the whole notion of right livelihood needs to be updated, and, mm-hmm. and that updating is crucial mm. for the 21st century. Mm. So, right livelihood is no longer about not, you know, entering into certain undesirable professions, but rather, we, you know, in a modern economy, right, we outsource in our, our job, our specialties to so many different people. Right. I mean, you don't do you when you want to eat chicken. Do you need to actually butcher the chicken? No. I mean, you 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 out you you give that job to other people. I mean, right. the modern modern economy is, is so specialized. So why would you blame the butcher for killing the chicken when you're the one who is ordering that chicken? Right. So right. so we. So, I mean, to me, you know, that right livelihood ties in with the concept of karma. Mm-hmm. Because in, in Buddhism, the notion of karma is more, more like an individual thing. But, I mean, in the mm. modern economy, you cannot talk about individual karma. Because right. everything is so twisted. I mean, it's, it's all intertwined. So so it's interesting here, because the way you're describing this, I'm, I'm hearing some threads of... So holiness and and wholeness and coming together. And so you like you just said, I can hear you saying that in Buddhism, you get karma and some things that are very individualistic. Christianity offers and suggests that like things like sin, there's a communal essence. And right. and so there's this kind of interesting um, as even Roman Catholics will talk about things like structural sin, that there's sin right. overall in the structure system. And, and I hear you even discussing that, that there's almost this dialogue yeah. back and forth between the kind of individual well, and the communal here. Yeah, because well, one of the major teachings of Buddhism, I would say very central and is directly related to dependent origination, is the doctrine of no self. Mm-hmm. Okay? If there's no self, how can you have individual karma? Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people don't un- don't understand that. Right, right, right. right. And, and even, we can go even one step further. Because, I mean, a, a great Buddhist scholar by the name of Wapola Rahula, mm-hmm. who wrote yes. What the Buddha Taught. What the Buddha Taught, yeah. He even refuted mm-hmm. the, the free will. Because, I mean, if there's no self, how can you have free will? So we are basically, if you believe in this interconnected and interdependent world, we are basically doing everything as a collective. Because, I mean, everything is related to everything else. So, mm-hmm. so that's the new vision of love. Love is all these inter-relationships. Right, a wholeness. Yeah. Yeah, that's a wholeness. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, your very kind of earthy analogy about talking about how prostitution is kind of integrated even with the economy reminds me of the poet William Blake. We, we joke on this podcast that every episode we have to mention Thomas Merton at least once, and we've done that, and we have to mention it at least one poet at least once. And so so now I'm, I'm going to invoke William Blake. Uh-huh. And William Blake wrote in his poem, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, he wrote, right. brothels are built with bricks of religion, which, you know, and I think a lot of, a lot of religious people don't want to face that, but it ties exactly into what you're saying is that our, our shadow very often is intimately tied in with what we see as our more respectable or more desirable 
right. elements. So part of what I'm hearing from you, Ken, is that your vision, whether it's talking about Christianity and Buddhism or talking about religion and economics, you know, silence and writing, you seem to have a very holistic way of approaching of approaching life and approaching your your experience and your your understanding of life. And I just want to say I think that that's really, really beautiful. I have one more question related specifically to silence that I would like to share with you. And that has to do with, and I know you are familiar with the concept of the monkey mind, mm-hmm. the, uh, the idea that, that when we are silent, we immediately encounter the noise within. And mm-hmm. so I'm curious whether through your experience of, of Christianity or certainly your experience with Zen, if you have any thoughts on how to meet the monkey mind and how to find the silence when the monkey is screeching. Mm. What, what, mm. what, what thoughts would you have about that? Um, that's a very good question. You know, I, I read a lot of writings of uh, J. Krishnamurti. Uh, Krishnamurti has a way to drive people crazy because he never <laughs> provides any methods. Right, right. right. He proof is the pathless land. That's right. right. That's right. Now, but he did actually give you a tip. And he said, the ability to observe without evaluation is the highest intelligence. And that ties directly into the Buddhist practice of mindfulness. So how do you um, clear out all these distractions? You don't really repress or suppress all these different thoughts. It's more, I mean, it's, it's more than enough to just simply and very gently observe all these thoughts and emotions as they arise, okay? So your role is kind of like you're the parent and you're watching a little child, you know, trying to, running here and there, trying to catch butterflies, you know, but you don't, you know, exert, assert any judgment. And you, you, you watch the child going from here and there, just take note. Because if you criticize or if you're judgmental, then then you won't be able to see the, the full picture. That's the miracle of mindfulness, because all these distractions, they have a way to be taken care of by themselves once you exercise attention. Yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah. So, so the silence is in the attending. Yes, it's in the, in the attention. Mm. Can I want to circle back a little bit to what you were saying just a little bit ago reminded me of... Henry Nouwen, in his book, Peacework, he says, the wounds and needs that lie behind the wars we condemn are the wounds and needs we share with the whole human race. Mm -hmm. We, too, are deeply marked by the dark forces that make one war emerge after another. We, too, are a part of the evil we protest against. And ever since I read that, that always blew my mind, but points to this one story, this one story of love, as you say. And I wonder what you might say is your hope for this one story in creating that sense of wholeness that you also mentioned in this rootedness and togetherness. Yes. Part of wholeness is to see that, you know, goodness and evil, they are interdependent and they're basically just two sides of the same coin. If you don't understand that, then, then it's, it's easy to have this mentality, which is we versus them. And, and there will always be war and there will, all be, will be all kinds of arguments. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. basically the, the wisdom of dependent origination because you see that everything, they are interrelated. 
And it also relates back to silence because once you see the world as a massive entanglement of relationships, then you cannot really talk about things like that. You know, there, there's actually a story in the Pali Canon about uh, Buddha has a disciple called Ananda. Ananda has told Buddha that he was able to understand dependent origination and, and he could see it clearly. Okay? And Buddha corrected him. It's basically, Buddha says all sentient beings, they, they have problem seeing this dependent origination clearly, just because everything is tied together. There's, so so when, you, when you understand that, then you will be at a loss of words. <laughs> the, 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 the words no longer would help. You know, it, it's, it's interdependent. Uh, there's no even you and me. There's no self, and there's no subject and object. So you, you can only, I mean, your only response would be silence. And uh, yeah. That's that's my take on that. Wow. So so what I love about that is maybe just because I'm on a podcast called Encountering Silence, you just told me that the hope is silence. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it, it's not about doing nothing, but I mean, there, right. silence is a very rich kind of experience. Right. You know, exactly. Uh, many different types of silence. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and I, I've been writing recently about the, the Taoist concept of Wu Wei. Wu Wei is not doing nothing. Right. right? But it's a, it's a creative kind of force. In, and silence is exactly the same thing. The modern people cannot understand what's so what the, what's the big deal about silence or what's the big deal about Wu Wei. Right. And one of my colleagues has asked me this question, you know, years ago, maybe 10, 15 years ago. He said, Ken, you know, why do you make such a big deal out of Wu Wei? Didn't Wu Wei just mean doing nothing? <laughs> now, I responded to him. I said, well, imagine that... You never get any rest. You don't. You never sleep. What will happen to you? Right. So, so silence and Wu Wei has, even though that the modern mind, you know, think that they're unproductive, they're actually very productive. Right. What? Yeah. What I find is that, you know, when I was actively writing my book, when I get a good night's sleep, you know, some of the problems. Sometimes I did not know how to proceed further, but after a you know, night of sleep, there's some inner work that, that happened overnight right. that I'll, I'll, I'll get new inspirations, you know, uh, during sleep. Right. And and you cannot really explain it, you know, logically. You, you cannot explain it, you know, using some rational kind of uh, explanation. Mm-hmm. So that's that's basically the the work of Wu Wei. That's, right. that's the work of silence. Yeah. Right. Thank you so much for that. I, I first became familiar with Wu Wei reading Alan Watts when I was a young man, because he writes about mm. Wu Wei. But what uh, you have helped me to connect the dots right. is between Wu Wei and the Christian or the Judeo-Christian concept of Sabbath. That's right. Sabbath yeah. and leisure. That's right. And, and you know, we there, there's a philosopher, Joseph Piper, or Peeper, who says leisure is the basis of all culture. And the reason is, is because leisure is the basis of contemplation, which yeah. brings us right back to silence. And, yes. uh, and it connects is exactly with what Kurt was saying the other day when he said the whole focus of performance is non-performance. He's talking, he's talking about Wu Wei. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. So I, I think that we should look at sound and silence. You know, it's like when, when you have a picture, you know, you, you have different figures in that picture, but, but you need that empty space, you mm-hmm. know, in order for, for, for you to have a picture. Mm-hmm. Without the empty space, you, you see nothing. That's right. So, so silence and sound, they, they, they have an interactive kind of play or dance. You know, you cannot have one without the other. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. Ken, do you happen to have a silence hero? That's another question that we'd like to ask people is. Oh, yes. There's someone. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, so many. Uh, <laughs> Excellent. Please. Yeah. Let us know. But, I mean, I, I, I'm, I, I picked uh, one of the, my favorite, which is uh, St. Francis of Assisi. He said you should, you should preach the gospel all the time. But use words when necessary. Right. Only when necessary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Amen. I think that's a wonderful, wonderful point to to begin to wrap this up. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but um, this has been a lovely conversation. We really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Yeah, Ken, just thank you so much for pointing to just that importance of of embracing that one story. And the one story is love. Yes. And we find it in silence. So Which is our you hope. have spoken so many beautiful, wise things into us today. And we're so grateful that you could join us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Encountering Silence podcast. If you enjoy our ongoing conversation about the beauty of silence and its meaning in our lives, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or at our website, EncounteringSilence.com. You can subscribe to our email list at our website. Connect with us on social media, on Twitter at Silence Podcast, or on Facebook at Encountering Silence. And please visit www.patreon.com slash encountering silence that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash encountering silence to become a patron of this podcast your financial support will allow us to continue creating new episodes and spreading the message of how vital silence is to our social spiritual and physical well-being thank you